Hi everyone and welcome back to the podcast in partnership with the awesome Najahi events. More about them later. This podcast is a place where I tell stories of incredible people who inspire, motivate and encourage. And today's guest will not disappoint. Michael Crossland is an author, a businessman, an elite sportsman and one of the most sought after public speakers in Australia. His story is literally incredible. Michael was diagnosed with a rare form of life-threatening cancer and was the sole survivor of a horrific cancer drug trial, making Michael the definition of resilience. Despite spending nearly a quarter of his life in hospital, Michael has not let these setbacks slow him down. He released his first tell-all autobiography in 2016 and has become an international best-selling author. He has led a successful corporate career and found major success within the world of sports, making him a very fascinating guest. Today, Michael has dedicated his life to telling his story and inspiring people. He has spoken to over 700,000 people, from troops in Iraq to elite athletes and even charities that help individuals suffering with life-threatening illnesses. Michael also runs a school and an orphanage in Haiti and has become an inspiring humanitarian. Michael's story will teach us all a lesson about embracing the unknown and using our mindset to achieve our goals. His success, determination and story is truly remarkable and I think he will help us all find a renewed perspective on life. Michael, welcome. So Mike, thanks for coming to join us on the show all the way from Australia at the moment. Now we hear in different parts of the world that lockdown there is quite intense and people can't get in and out without strict quarantine rules, but I trust that you're safe and you're well. I am, mate. I'm, uh, I'm a little unwell, been, uh, been pushing, the, uh, pushing the envelope a little bit too much over the last few weeks. So the last sort of six days I've been pretty unwell, but I, uh, I got the energy back today and yeah, I'm excited to be a part of, uh, a part of today. And yeah, it's, it's, a little, it's a little surreal. We had we had serenity here for quite a long time. And then all of a sudden uh, over the last couple of weeks, it's gone back into heavy lockdown. And again, it just demonstrates how, how uh, we need to appreciate the little things whilst we still have them. And freedom is one thing I'm sure, you know, and many others take for granted so often. And um, you know, it's, it's sort of, taken away from us on a, on a very light level, but we will, uh, we'll get back there, no doubt. Now, you, you do a lot of work with motivational speaking and stuff, and I'll come on to your story in a while, but how, how you know, I, I, when I stand on a stage, I know that most people are terrified of public speaking, but when I stand on a stage, it's where I get my energy from. How has, how has shifting from being on stage to being online impacted you positively and negatively? Yeah, I think 2019, I did 186 flights. I was on... Um, yeah, 186 flights, 22 different countries around the world. And <clears throat> as you said, you know, I, I love it. I get my endorphin hit when I'm on stage and you got 20,000 people cheering and yelling. I, I, I can't tell you how amazing that feels, as, as you would know. But then, um, then 2020 hit, everything got cancelled. My tour with Tony got cancelled. And um, yeah, things changed very quickly. But I understand the importance of evolving, adapting and embracing change. The one thing that's hard for me, I think, and, and I'm sure for many others is, when you tell a joke, like, are you meant to pause? Like, I don't know whether I'm meant to pause or not. So I tell a joke and then and then I pause and it's just like crickets because everyone's got their microphones on mute. So I'm just hoping that people are laughing. And then and then when you're pausing, you feel like an idiot because you're not sure whether anybody's doing anything. They're probably sitting there going, come on, hurry up, hurry up. If that's the best line you got, then you've got to come up with some new material. So it's, uh, it's been interesting. But again, 
the benefit, you know, the benefit of being able to spend a little more time at home, spend and invest a little more time on my health. Um, you know, as many will hear throughout this uh, session, you know, my, my immune system is, is very, very uh, compromised, I guess you could say. I was in isolation for seven months last year. So I, um, I've enjoyed that ability. Okay, good. Thanks for sharing that with us. You absolutely bang on with the jokes, though. You're, you're absolutely... <laughs> that really touched the nerve with me because I know exactly how that feels. So for the people that don't know you and don't know much about your background, please can you tell us your story? What happened? Because you, you were really impacted by something very dramatic at a very young age. Yeah, and excuse me for the coughing, and I, I hope that we can uh, still get through this as effectively as what we, uh, what we can. But um, I, was, I was diagnosed at the age of 11 months with an incurable cancer of the central nervous system called neuroblastoma stage 4. Uh, the doctors told my family that there was no chance of survival to, to take me home and allow me to live the next few months. Um, but like we all have, we all have choices, and the choices that... My family made, in particular my mum, she chose to ask one question that was, I don't want to know what the chances are of my son dying is, I just want to know what the chances are of my son surviving. And the doctor gave me a 96% death rate. They said, you know, don't, don't put your boy through this sort of pain. But I'm just so grateful every day that she chose to look at my life being not 96% empty, but she chose to look at it being 4% full. And I started, started chemotherapy on my first birthday, my my chemo cycle was nine days on, three days off, uh, not for weeks or months, but for, for many, many years until they told my mum that they were terribly sorry, but the treatment was no longer doing the job. Uh, the tumour had taken over half of my body. It was growing up into my aorta. It was crushing my spine and up into my heart, and I needed to go into surgery. And I remember mum telling me the, the story about when they, they told her that I needed to have surgery. She came to grips of that. And then she said, but I'll still remember the day when you went in for your surgery because the doctor said to me, rather than wheeling him into theatre, would you like to carry him? And she said, oh, why is that? And he said, because this might be the last chance you ever get to hold your little boy alive. And I think... You know, I, I say it so often, but I, I realize now so clearly that it is so much easier lying in the bed than standing next to it. Um, you know, I, I had surgery. The surgery was not a success. They, they didn't get it all. They told me uh, or told my family that that was it. There was nothing they could do. But there was a uh, trial drug that they were trialing on 25 patients around the world. They had 24 candidates. And uh, they asked me whether I wanted to be number 25. And my family obviously said yes. We had no idea what the side effects would be. But we started the drug um, with 24 other families. And within one day, we were all transferred from the oncology ward to the burns unit. And the after effects of this drug were so bad that we were all covered from head to toe in blisters. They would, they would wrap us up in bandages and they would lie us in baths full of ice trying to prevent our brains from frying. And um, unfortunately, long story short, um, within 90 days, 24 of the 25 of us that were on that drug had, had died. Uh, the after effects were so bad, they burned us internally. Uh, I lost one of my lungs. Uh, my liver and my kidney were destroyed. The muscles around my heart began to deteriorate. But, you know, I, I say I'm one of the lucky ones, and I, I never say I'm one of the lucky ones because I'm still alive. I, I say I'm one of the lucky ones because I wasn't my mum. She had to go to death counselling once a week for two hours to deal with what was going to happen to a little boy um 
you know, she had to make the choice to inject a drug into a child that's killed every single person ever taken it. And, you know, I hope, I hope and pray that I never have to make those decisions and those choices. And, you know, I would not wish that sort of pain on, on my worst enemy. So my mum burnt me for another 18 months, hoping that one day I was allowed to go home. And um, just before my, I think it was just before my fifth birthday, the doctors came in and said, I don't know why they, it's funny, they, they take, and I'm sure you know about it, and anybody who's been to hospital, they, they take the parent or the guardian uh, outside the curtains to tell them the bad news. But I've never heard of soundproof curtains, like every hospital I've ever been to. I can hear everything that gets said, right? So they take them outside, they say, your son, he will never go to school, he'll never play sport. He'll be a housebound baby, but um, if he reaches his teenage years, it'll be a miracle. But you can take your little boy home. And I said to her as she came back through the curtains, I said, uh, what did the doctor say? And she looked at me in the face and said, uh, oh, son, the doctors told me that everything was going to be okay. So that was, the, um, that was the first battle. There's been, as you know, there's been a lot of battles since. I had my first heart attack when I was 12, another one when I was 18. Uh, I had bacterial meningitis. I got fluid on the brain in 2011. And then I'm sure we're going to get into 2016 where where things got really tough with, with my health and, and my family. And, and uh, you know, there's, there's still challenges each and every day that we all go through. But I think it's, uh, that saying is so true that our body has limitations, but our mind does not. And if I can continue to master this thing, I can continue to push through this stuff. When you were going through those experiences, obviously not very young, but when you were kind of 10 or 12 years old, were you, were you aware that you were a fighter and you were a survivor in that way? Were you aware that you, there was something that was driving you from inside or was it just life? I think for me, I, I had this big dream of playing baseball in America. That was, that was my big dream. That was the thing that kept pushing me through the constant battles of no's. And I knew that I was different because... Not every other kid sat on a nebulizer every recess and every lunchtime watching all the other kids play in the playground. Not all the other kids were bald and had no eyebrows, no eyelashes and had scabby skin and wore bandages to school and, and got picked on horrifically. But I think that I learned such a valuable lesson as a young kid that your value does not decrease based on one's inability to see your worth. And the more that I began to realize that I need to stop trying to let my life be dictated by other people's beliefs and opinions and start to channel that energy in focusing on what I feel about me and start to believe in me. You know, I got told when I was 12, when I had that first heart attack that I'd never play sport again. Mum come through the curtains, told me everything was going to be okay. And two and a half years later, I was in America playing baseball, representing my country. So it's just remarkable when we stop focusing on what people tell us we can't do and focus on what we believe we can do uh, it's amazing what we can achieve i think and do you believe that there's that you gained strength of believing what you can do through adversity and do you think that's why that might be a challenge for some other people because then maybe they don't have that adversity to use as a, 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 a some form of benchmark or gauge you know I, I i really believe that we all have we all have a story we all have some type of pain and suffering what I think is so different is our solutions and whether my challenges are greater and more darker than others 
is in the eye of the beholder because I may be diagnosed with an incurable cancer and you may be frustrated because you're stuck in traffic. But if you allow that challenge to impact you as deeply as what mine is, even worse, then your challenge is far worse than mine. And, you know, I, I, I really think that there's only two types of people in the world. There are those that use the pain of their past as the justification behind why they choose to fail. <coughs> Excuse me. And there are those that use the exact same pain and suffering as the motivation to succeed. So in my opinion, it's just choices. You know, I, I made a choice and continue to make the choice to use the pain of the past as my motivation to keep getting up and keep moving forward and keep striving to succeed and impact others. Whether, whereas many other people, as you know, utilize their pain and suffering as the reason why they're going to sit back and rest on their laurels and think that their life's not fair and never achieve anything. When you, when you think about people that have near-death experiences or mortality is up for question very soon, you can compare it almost to people that are in the old people's home living with regret. You know, what, what they're, they're in their 80s or 90s or whatever and they're like, I wish I'd have done this. I wish I'd have lived a life more authentic to myself. I wish I'd have pursued X, Y, or Z, you know, whatever it may be. And everyone's got their, their, their thought process, but it exists quite predominantly in that environment. Do you think that because you went through experiences that very clearly were a chance of taking your life, that it made you really realize that life was for living and you were going to grab the grab life by the balls almost? Yeah, I think so. And I think that, you know, when you can come out on the other side of a near-death experience or you can continue to push through when the doctors continue to tell you that tomorrow is not guaranteed, I think that's an, an amazing advantage. If you leverage off of that in a place that will empower your mindset to impact and serve other people. You know, I, I, I know that there are many people, uh, friends of mine that have sadly passed away that have gone the other way. And they've rapidly, rapidly spiraled. And, and, you know, they may have been given 12 months, 18 months, but within 90 days they're gone because they've convinced themselves that they're going to go. Whereas others have used it as that, as that kick and that, that driver. And, and I think that for me has been absolutely a key to being able to continue to push through when, when times get really tough. It's interesting. There was a lady that was on the show called Katie Piper um, about a year ago. And Katie was dating um, a guy for a few weeks and decided to break up with him and he poured acid all over her and down her throat and uh, across her face and stuff. She's a very pretty girl. And so she went through a horrific, horrific experience. And I, sp I spoke to her about this and she says that ev everyone has their challenges to face and just so grateful that not many people have to face the challenge that I face. Mm. But it it changed everything about how I decided to live my life. When I hear these stories along with your story, then what, what I'm, I'm learning is our mind is like powerful beyond belief. If we were only able to harness what its capabilities were, it, it, it's, you know, it's unstoppable almost, isn't it? Yeah, we, we uh, always have lived by the motto, it's not the adversity in your life that defines you, it's how you deal with it. That's something that my mom taught me as a very young boy. And even in 2010, we, um, we were told that we'd never be able to have kids. 
And, you know, we were, we were obviously upset because I wanted to be a dad. I, I think that's the greatest gift that God can bestow on any of us. And then there was an earthquake in Haiti that killed 316,000 people, left millions and millions of people homeless. And I thought maybe this was my calling. And that's when I walked away from my senior executive role. I had 600 staff and 120 banks around Australia and New Zealand to, to commit my life in being able to serve kids that didn't have anything. And uh, we ended up going over there and starting an orphanage. We have 44 children now that we look after. 365 days a year, we've got 270 kids that attend our school. And it's amazing, I think, to your point around mindset and, and the power of what we have when we harness it. It would have been so easy for us to go down the other road and just think this is, this is not fair. But then to be able to go, you know what, maybe this is our sign, this is our opportunity. And we tried for years to bring, you know, one of the, one of the kids home and unfortunately due to trafficking, we were, we were unable to bring her back to Australia. But, you know, we went over there to make a difference in somebody else's life who'd never be able to return the favour. And these kids have given me and taught me and inspired me more than I could ever teach and educate and inspire them. You know, I... I, I am eternally grateful for the lessons that they have taught me as opposed to what I've been able to teach them. And it's come off the back of adversity. It's come off the back of being told what we can't do. And then I'm sure we'll get to, um, we'll get to the ending at a stage where you want to. But, um, you know, fortunate enough, those doctors that told me I'd never be able to start a family, they, they were wrong. You just keep proving everything wrong. It's kind of like even that. It's even that, no, that's not going to happen either. It's kind of where that comes from. Goodness only knows. If we could bottle that, we could sell it for <laughs> <Yeah>. a fortune. <laughs> tell, tell, me about, tell me about your passion for baseball and what happened on that journey. Because um, baseball is not a typically Australian sport, is it? No, it's, uh, it's cricket or football. And I sucked at both. So uh, that was never going to happen. But, um, you know, my mum, she bought me a Velcro glove and a Velcro ball. I used to get the doctors to put the needle in my head. So I had two hands to play catch, and that was just, that was the big dream, just to throw the ball back and forth. And yeah, then I was uh, 12 and, and all that health deteriorated. And uh, two and a half years later, I got a chance to play for the Australian Expos team. And then, excuse me, and then in um, <coughs> 2017, I was in Texas and a, uh, a scout came up and offered me a full ride scholarship to to live in America and play baseball. So I got a chance to play a hundred plus games a year and we're playing in front of 20,000 people. Like the biggest crowd I'd ever played in front of in Australia was about 20 people. And that was the mums and the dads of the team we're playing against. So 20,000 was amazing. But, but as we all know, everybody listening, we all, we all, uh, we all live in a world that um, is full of ups and downs, full of roller coasters and, and full of moments where our world can change in a heartbeat and, what frustrates me so much is we wait until it's too late before we decide to change. And we wait until we are diagnosed with before we stop smoking. We, we wait until we lose someone that we love before we tell them that we love them. And, you know, I challenge everybody listening, just text somebody you love and say, Hey, I care about you. I love you. Thanks for being a great friend. And I guarantee I know what they'll write back. It'll be two words and a question mark. They'll write back. What's wrong. They will think that you are, um, I think you're dying or uh, you've lost your job or you're drunk, one of the three, you know. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah, and then I, I was only over there for six months. I slid into a base in Arizona and I woke up three days later and that was it. My career was done. My health had deteriorated rapidly and my heart couldn't compete. 
financially we couldn't afford to be there and I was I was sent back home and I never played baseball in America again but you know my my dream was not how many months or years I wanted to play in America it was just I wanted to play baseball in America that was the big dream and I was so privileged and so blessed to be able to to do that um, I still have an impact in the game now I was lucky enough to be a part of the Australian World Baseball Classic in 2016 where we played South Africa and um, then I was a part of the uh, All-Star Game in 2017 and 18 as the first base coach. So, you know, really, really lucky to be able to still give back to the game that, that gave me so much. And then how do, you, how do you move on from that in terms of having a passion for that? And, you know, you got into business and decided to go down that path. What, what drove you in that direction? It was, um, it was interesting. I, I've never had a plan B. You know, I think there's a lot of people that have a plan A and a plan B. I'm, I'm a guy that does 110 at plan A, and when I fail at plan A, I come up with another plan A. And I just got offered a job as a teller, um, a greeter, sorry, a greeter at a bank. <clears throat> and um, I remember the CEO came in. He was like three, four days into my, my career, and he said, where do you see yourself in five years' time? And I I don't know where it came from. I just said, in five years' time, I'm going to take your job. And he uh, don't ever say that to the CEO. It didn't go down very well at all. But, um, you know, it's it's amazing. Within 12 months, I was the youngest bank manager in Australia, two years area manager, three years state manager. Within four years, I was one of the youngest national sales development managers for one of the largest companies in the world. And I, uh, I, was, I was very driven by the three Ps that destroy people. I was driven by power, privileges, and possessions. And... Um, it really took me to hit rock bottom in 2009 or 2008, 2009 for me to, uh, to wake up to myself. You know, I had to have the $100,000 suits and the, or the cars and the Rolexes and the Armani suits and the million-dollar houses. And, and I just – I think I chased what I perceived success was and it, it took me so far away from what success really is. And now I really understand what it is. You know, success is not about how big my house is. It's about – it's about how big my heart is. It's about getting out of bed every day and, and knowing in my heart that I can make a difference in somebody else's life. And for me, that, that, really, that really hit me when, um, when in 2008, 9, 10, I got bacterial meningitis. I got fluid on the brain. I had Bell's palsy. I, I had to learn to walk again and talk again. And I invested all of my mum's money when mum and dad separated. That was about six weeks before the GFC hit. And I lost all of her money and I, I failed as a man and I failed as a son and that's the darkest place I've, I've ever been in. And uh, sometimes we need to go to that place for us to realize there's only one way to go and start to count our blessings and not our problems. And that's when my whole world changed. And that's when I committed in 2010 to chase impact as opposed to chase income. And now my world is uh, my world's a whole lot brighter than what it was back then. Talk to me about religion. How, you know, I, you, you know, obviously know Nick Vujicic, and no arms, no legs, no worries. In the, a, a great guy, and spent a bit of time with him. And for me, he's he's got a deep connection to his faith. But you could pretty much accept him not being very happy with God and what hand he'd been dealt when he was young. And he hated, he hated the thought of religion and the thought of God for a good period of his time until he was in his, his early teens. He rejected it. He didn't like it at all. What kind of relationship have you had with God? 
or your faith? Yeah, my thought on that is why do we only ask for help when times are tough? And I, I thought, I thought for a long time that that I was walking this challenging road alone. But now I realize that through each dark day, he was carrying me and they were his footsteps in the sand and not mine. And I realize so clearly now that there is no way in the world I'd be able to get through what I have gone through and what I need to continue to get through um, without some sort of higher being. And, uh, you know, I'm so grateful for my faith. I'm so grateful that I, uh, I've had a God in my life that has never uh, forsaken me and was, has always been there for me and have, has got me through some of the darkest days of my life. And now I can not just call on him when I'm in a dark place, but I can rejoice for the relationship when times are amazing as well. Do you come from a religious family? I grew up in a, uh, in a strong Catholic mum and a not-so-faithful dad. And uh, I was <clears throat> at church as a kid in hospital all the time. And then I got out, got into sports, and things started to flow pretty good. And then I got into corporate, and that took me even further away um, because I thought I could do it all on my own, making good money and you know, the high-flying lifestyle, fancy cars, sitting up in front of planes, private jets, all that stuff. And then, yeah, and then, and then you get a reality check and you realize, you realize how, much, how much you need when uh, you start to prioritize what's important. And, um, how how old were you at that point? I, I'm 36, 37 now. Um, so it was 10 years ago, 11 years ago. So I was in my early to mid-20s when um, when times got very, very dark and very, very challenging for me. And then, as you know, like five years ago, I got very, very unwell again. And uh, I got through that so much easier because I had the comfort and the belief that everything was going to be okay regardless of what the outcome was. You've had more happen to your body physically in your young lifetime than... 10 people or even a thousand people will have in their whole lifetime. I'm sure there's an element of Iron Man in there or <laughs> some other, uh, other superhero, but to go through what you've been through, to face the challenges that you face and to be sat here with me right now with a smile on your face, almost, almost telling me this in a kind of matter of fear, yeah, this happened to me and that happened to me, but guess what? Because of that, this happened to me and that happened to me and that happened to me. Do you think that comes from, oh, there's an element of nurture or nature in there. Do you think your mum's spirit and your mum's mindset and mentality and way of approaching life has, has filtered down to you and impacted on you in the same way? Yeah, no question. No question at all. And even looking back on hospital days, you know, <clears throat> I had to get up and go to the toilet even though I was burnt. Whereas everybody else just peed in a, in a tube. She made me do my homework at school. She made me do schoolwork in hospital, whereas everybody else was really wrapped up in cotton wool. She made sure that I had a dream and a goal and a vision that was bigger and greater and more challenging than just to be a normal kid and a kid that gets to go home and make friends and go to school. I had to dream bigger and bigger and bigger to continually stretch and grow and challenge myself. So that's been embedded in me at such a young age and continued to be reinforced throughout my life. And 
<clears throat> and then all of a sudden in 2016, the roles were reversed and I had to be the rock and the strength. And um, because it was the first time really in my life that I'd had the doctors tell me what was going on in my life as opposed to telling mum what was going on in my life. So I had the choice to tell her what I wanted to tell her versus what the doctors have told me. And that was a real full circle moment in my life. You know, in 2000 and well, what was it, 1989, I was told I'd never go to school, sport, etc. And she said everything will be okay. When I was 12 um, and I had my heart attack, she told me everything was going to be okay. And then in 2016, unfortunately, they found four more tumors in my throat. They told me that my tomorrows weren't guaranteed and that I really needed to slow down. And I, you know, as a, as a 32 year old man at that time in my life, I, I did a video message saying goodbye to my family. I, I prepared my own funeral. And, um, I still remember the phone call. She, she called me when I was on my way home from the doctors and she said the exact words that I had said to her so many times in the past, what did the doctor say? And I got a chance to return the favor and use her words and say, oh, the doctors told me that everything was going to be okay. And they removed three out of the four tumors. Um, the fourth tumor is unfortunately, that's why I continually cough, unfortunately, but um, the fourth tumor is wrapped around my vocal cord and there's nothing they can do about it. And unfortunately, there's going to be a time when, when that needs to come out and uh, I'll probably never be able to speak again. But I've realized that the quality of one's life is not dictated nor is it determined by the amount of days that we live on this earth. It's about what we fit into those days that allows us to live a remarkable life. And I know that I'm as old as I've ever been, but I'm as young as I'll ever be. And I really want to make sure that every day for me counts. You know, you used the words earlier about existing. You know, I, I don't think that I'm existing. I, I think that I'm truly living. And I think that's far more than what many people do in in their lives, whether they live to 100 or not. You know, I, I get to get out of bed every single day knowing that my tomorrows aren't guaranteed. And, you know, I, I go through a gratitude ritual every single morning. And I've been really unwell the last week. And every day I'm grateful that I'm one step closer to being better as opposed to complaining about the fact that I'm not well. And I think that it's just amazing what we can convince our mind to do and be and feel and think when we start to take back control of it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I had to be the guy that made the decisions. And as I said earlier, it's, it's far easier lying in the bed than standing next to it. And of recent times, as you know, I've, I've had to stand next to the bed. And, and that, that has been the worst pain that I've experienced in my entire life because I'm not in the bed and I'm not in control. And that is, that can be crippling if we allow it to be. Your relationship with your mum brings such warmth to my heart. I feel, I feel lots of us will say we have great relationships with our mums, but she was so many things to you, so many ways. And as I, as I think in a, and I, I recount my memories from listening to what you've got to say today, but also previously, it that relationship that you had with her and that exists is something that's that's so fierce but yet so positive at the same time how, how 
you know, and, and, and I think about, <clears throat> I'm a parent myself, I've got two daughters, and I think, you know, I think listening to you makes me think about how I parent my kids, about how I coach, advise, encourage, support, because nothing was impossible with, with your, your mum and you, was it? Nothing was impossible, and everything was possible, and there was hope. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I think my... My mum taught me how to love and nurture and she taught me how to be a parent and she taught me how to show by example. And, you know, I, I think my dad, he, um, he probably taught me exactly how not to parent. He taught me how not to be a man. He taught me how not to be, he taught me how not to be a husband and how not to be a father. And I'm eternally grateful for that because I know that, I know that my wife will never feel the pain that my mum felt. And I think so often we strive to admire and implement other people's traits in our lives. But I think we can also learn just as much from those traits that we should not implement to better our lives and better our future and better our families. And, you know, I am, I'm just, uh, I'm so grateful for both of them. Wow. It's, yeah, it's really important. It's really important, as you say that, to know what not to do. Mm. When you, when you, if I can just talk for a little bit about the charity work that you've done with Haiti, what, <laughs> I, I work with an organization over here with children in Bangladesh that are born into the slums that have nothing. And <clears throat> I work to help get them educated and to give them a chance in life. And like you, the, the feeling I get from spending time with these kids after what I know they've been through um, is, is a payment bigger than any check on the planet could ever be. How did how did Haiti become the place for you? Because that's a long way from Australia. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's twenty three it, hours, twenty twenty two and a half hours flying time. So it's uh, it's a long it's a long way. But I, w I was actually working with the uh, I was working with the Toronto Blue Jays Major League Baseball team, and um, I was in Dunedin at the time, and the earthquake hit, and a buddy of mine rang me and said, um, "I swear to you to this day," he said. Would you like to come to Haiti, uh, to Tahiti? And I was like, sure, why is that? And he said, oh, there's been an earthquake there. And I was like, all right, man, I'm in. But um, can you make sure you bring my board? Because the surf in Tahiti is epic. My auntie went there for her, you know, her um, honeymoon. And she just told me it was the most beautiful place in the world. She's like, he's like, what? I was like, yeah, Tahiti, it's incredible. He goes, no, no, we're going to Haiti. And I was like, oh, Tahiti, where's Haiti? And then I worked out but I'm only a couple of hours away from it because I was in Florida. And um, as I said earlier, you know, I, I never anticipated um, the impact that they were going to have on me. <clears throat> I, I aligned with a lot of charities when I transitioned out of corporate and started into this speaking world. And then I realized that there were people donating like $50 a month to provide drinking water to a, a boy or girl in Africa and $45 getting chewed up in admin fees and five bucks was going to the kids. So we just said enough's enough. So we started our own charity called Frontier Projects where every cent gets sent. And 
as you know, many, many, uh, very, very few charities in the world, I think it's less than 1% of charities, is where every dollar gets donated um, and goes straight to the cause. And the impact that we've had over there has been, has been amazing. We never, we never anticipated the impact that we could have. And I think, you know, when, as I said earlier, when you just strive to serve, not earn, um, your impact is is uh, is dominoed, and we, you know, we're we're just so grateful to to be able to see these kids. You know, we we met this one little boy. He was a, he was uh, eating food out of a garbage bin uh, for four months when his mum and dad died. And uh, fast forward to twenty twenty one, we got him into school. Uh, he lives in the orphanage or lived in the orphanage. He graduated from high school. He's just finished his second year of studies, uh, studying engineering. He got a full ride scholarship to study in Brazil. And uh, he's just finished his second year of studies and he's fallen into the golden keys category, which means he's in the top 10% of university students from around the world. He's one of the smartest kids on the planet. And, you know, I think to myself some days when I'm having a tough day and my voice is raspy and I keep coughing all the time, I think, man, what's my excuse? This kid has every reason to quit on life. And he, uh, he has not. He refuses. You went on to uh, write a book that became a bestseller. Tell, tell me about that journey. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a wild one. Here it is here. Um, the title, obviously, <clears throat> got to do with my, uh, my story itself. But I guess uh, we had, we had some, some big things happen in our life in uh, 2017. <coughs> Excuse me. After being told that we will never uh, be able to have kids. We announced to the world after five years of IVF that we were going to have a baby. And um, that was amazing. Uh, We were due to have the baby the end of February 2018. Um, But on the 8th of December 2017, my wife had a lot of back pain. We went to hospital. She was 29 weeks pregnant. And um, we we were told that our baby was on its way. Uh, We were airlifted to Sydney. And um, four days later at 6.40 p.m. on the 12th of December, uh, my wife gave birth to a, a, beautiful, little, a beautiful little boy uh, who was very, very unwell. He, um, he only weighed uh, just on two pounds and he was taken away from us. He was put in intensive care, unit level three, where um, we, we couldn't be parents. We couldn't hold him or touch him. We had to go through these little glass containers and then um, a month later we were told that he was doing really well and they transferred us all back to our local hospital here in Coffs Harbour and then the very next day we got a phone call from the doctor telling us to go in and we went in and he um, he took me into one room and my wife went to our little boy and he sat me down and he told me that um, our little boy had a horrible illness called sepsis, a, um, a, a blood disease where um, uh, we were told we'd only have four days with him and we were getting airlifted back to Sydney Hospital. And I remember I walked out of the room and my wife said to me, what did the doctor say? And um, at that point, it was just like this domino of what mum told me, what mum told me, what I told mum, and now I'm going to tell my wife. And I told her everything was going to be okay. And on the uh, on the plane flying back to Sydney, our little boy stopped breathing. And I remember, I remember just praying out the window, just saying, "Hey, man, you you take take 
take my house, take my car, take everything I've ever created, everything I ever owned. Um, but please don't take my little boy. And it's so sad that in the world we live in, we have to wait until we get to that really dark point for us to begin to prioritize what's important. And then um, he, he, uh, he started breathing on his own again. And, and then four days later, we captured his first little smile. And I think that was the day that we knew uh, truly that everything was going to be okay. And now he's, uh, he's three years old. He's healthy. He shits more than we can imagine. He, um, he eats more than we can imagine. And, um, you know, we, we love him. We love him more than we could ever imagine. And it's like another little human running around on the planet with your heart in his body. And uh, what made the world just so much sweeter is um, in January of this year, my wife uh, gave birth to a beautiful, healthy little girl named Summer Grace. So now we have a little boy and a little girl. And when COVID hit last year and the world changed, my... Uh, my wife uh, had lost her job and my, my mum had lost her job. She needed to go into surgery. I had 68 events get cancelled overnight and uh, we just signed a contract to build our dream home. And my wife said, um, what are we going to do? And I just said, everything's going to be okay. And that's when I put pen to paper and uh, wrote this book. And, you know, I'm just so grateful that it's a, it's a bestseller now in six countries around the world. And we donate all the profits to charity. We've never taken a cent from the book. And, you know, that just allows me to feel as though not only am I getting to leave a legacy, but I'm also getting to live into my legacy as well. And for that, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm eternally grateful. That's beautiful. Tell me before we finish, because this, this means a lot to me, but Tell me what it was like being able to buy your mum a house. Yeah, in 2016, four weeks before I was diagnosed, um, I had had a really good year of working and um, you know, I, I had to put her in a caravan park in 2009 um, because I'd invested all of her money and lost it. And, you know, I, I really failed as a son and... I was so ashamed of the man that I'd become because of my ego and arrogance. It destroyed her and it destroyed me and destroyed my family. And um, yeah, in 2016, um, I, I was so fortunate to put a pink ribbon on a new door to a new home and uh, to see the day that I gave her those keys, you know, people think, oh, geez, you must be rich because you bought your mom a house. No, no, I just, I just prioritized what was important. And I still pay the $450 a week comes out of my account. Sucks. Not a fan. Not a fan of the money coming out. But I am a fan of the joy. The joy that's, uh, that's apparent in her voice every time I call her when she's outside playing in the garden. And um, it was a really valuable lesson to me at that stage in my life that it is far greater to give than to receive. And uh, it, made me, it made me really proud of the man that I'd become. And to see, uh, to see her enjoying that place is, um, you know, without a doubt, goes down in the, in the top three, top four of the greatest days of my life without, without question. It's epic. I just, when you explain it, I just think about my mum. It just takes me to thinking about my mum and, yeah, it's a very special, it's a very special thing. Okay. There's a lot of people that are listening to this right now that have heard your story. Let's, let's maybe, maybe we can impart 
some words of wisdom and some advice to those people just before we finish. There's people that are struggling. There's people that have gone through very difficult experiences and then as you've had a chance to spend more time with your family. I haven't seen my, my youngest daughter since August of last year. I haven't seen my eldest since um, January of this year. Now, wonderfully, next week I get to see them both, so it's wonderful news. And I haven't seen my mum either since uh, for a year either. So I get to see all of them. And so as you tell your story, obviously all of this resonates with me. But it's very easy to get downbeat. It's very easy to feel either hard done by or think that the world's throwing a lot more stones at us than we than we we should re really be accepting how do, how do we stay po focused how do we stay positive how do we how do we have the right mindset to move forward in a constructive way what, what do we have to do have you got some steps or maybe some ideas that we can listen to yeah i think uh for me i i believe that it is critical for us to have a very structured routine a daily routine which will empower us to get our mind right as i said earlier our body has limitations, but our mind does not. So if there's a way that we can train the brain, if we can train our mindset to be in a place of um, heightened awareness around gratitude and optimism and resilience, then I really believe that that will see and serve us greatly through our dark times. So for me, I just have a three-step process that I deliver on every single day. Even when I'm really sick, I make sure that I get it done. And it is a non-negotiable and it starts early. You know, I... I heard um, Arnold Schwarzenegger say the other day, how many hours do you sleep? Someone says, oh, hey, he's like, man, you only need to sleep six. So what you need to do is learn how to sleep faster. I was like, all right, that's, that's amazing. But for me, I have a three-step process, activation, meditation, appreciation. First thing okay, but I'm going to make, uh, let, hold on, hold on. Let me make notes of this because I want to make notes for everybody so that I can give it. So activation. Meditation and appreciation. So the first thing we need to yep. do is get active. We need to do something, some sort of exercise, whether it's a run, a stretch, go to the gym, whatever. Clearly, you can see my physique. I do not go to the gym. Um, I, I, you know, I spell weight wrong. You know, I, I do not, I do not lift, um, but I do like to exercise. So I, I try and run. Uh, the doctors told me I'd never be able to run because I've only got one lung. So I try and pump out five k's every morning. Um, if if I'm really unwell, I'll get up and stretch. And what's amazing is. I'll feel unwell and I'll get up and I'll stretch and then I'll be down on my hands and knees and I'm like, oh, I may as well just do a couple of push-ups. All of a sudden, I've done 20 push-ups. And then I'm like, well, I've already done 20 push-ups. I may as well do some sit-ups. So I'll get some sit-ups on. And then I'm like, well, I've done sit-ups and push-ups. I may as well do some squats. Now, all of a sudden, I've done a workout in a state of mind where I thought to myself, I'm just going to sleep in. So for me, it's been a key. Activation. Second one, meditation. I thought... You know, excuse my bluntness, but I thought bong-smoking hippies were the people that uh, meditated. I, I had no idea. Now now I work with pro athletes earning $30 million a year, the top 50 CEOs under the age of 50 here in Australia, and that's one thing they all have in common. They all meditate. They understand the power and the importance of controlling the mind and slowing the thoughts down. We have 80,000 thoughts a day and 70% of them are negative. So if there's a way we can reduce the amount of thoughts – that's going to really help us stop listening to this noise that distracts us on a day-to-day -day basis. And then the last one is appreciation. And I spoke about it earlier. I have a gratitude journal every day that I write in, but I also drive accountability with my gratitude. So I have six or seven of my clients that I coach on a day-to-day -day basis where I text them and they text me the three things that they are truly grateful for. 
when you look at the meditation and the gratitude stuff, meditation is going to reduce the amount of thoughts you have. Gratitude is going to reduce the amount of negativity that you have. Now, all of a sudden, you've gone from 56,000 negative thoughts a day down to 50, down to 40. Now, all of a sudden, you wonder why people are so resilient and optimistic because you stop listening to the voices in your head. You know, I love that saying, you need to stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. Uh, so me, that's, that's, my, <clears throat> that's my real crux, daily grind, routine, never get out of it, never stop it. If I do it for 21 days, now it's a habit, not an action, so I don't need to write it down. Same as an alarm clock. I used to have to set my alarm clock at 5.15. I set it for 20 days. The 21st day, I woke up at 5.14. And that's how it is two years later. It's still the exact same thing. I get up at the same time. I do my best to go to bed at the same time, and I get my activation, meditation, appreciation on. So, um, you know, I've, I've got so much stuff I can talk to you all day about it, but uh, for me, that's, that's the crux. You start your day right, you're going to have the ability to get through the tough days. And for everybody that would like a copy of your book, what's it called again? It's called, I don't even know where it is. Everything will be okay. Uh, if you buy it from my website, then all the money goes to charity. If you buy it from a bookshop, then I think we get about 60 cents and that goes to charity. And the other $29.40 goes to the bookshop. So um, we donate, I think we get, I think we make about 12 bucks a book. So we donate $12 from every book to, uh, to charity and, that's why we've been able to make um, make a real big impact. Guys, for all of you that are listening to this podcast right now, do me a favor and Michael a favor, and more importantly, those kids in Haiti a favor, and go and buy the book, all right? I'll get you the website so you can do it, um, and you can go straight to the website and buy it through there. But go buy the book. There's kids that will benefit from you making that purchase, and you know as well as I do, a few bucks here and there for a book that will inspire you but will help the kids in Haiti that deserve it. Come on. It's ridiculous not to. All it is is a simple purchase. And you remember, you've got subconscious spend, all that money you spend all the time without even thinking about it. We'll take a little bit of that and put it to a good use. Okay. Um, it's been lovely talking to you. It really has. I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. I, I, I mean, I... Uh, I can never put myself in your shoes. I can never imagine what you've been through. I, I, just, I just can't. It just makes me gasp when I think of every step of the journey along the way. But I am filled with so much love and so much warmth from your relationship with your mum. Let me tell you that. And obviously different parts of people's stories resonates in different ways. But that relationship you have with your mum is something that just sits so, so warmly inside. And the fact that you will not give up, you would not give up and you will keep moving forward and you'll keep living your life. And then lastly, again, the most beautiful bit. A life of service, isn't it? The more you give, the more you receive. And I sometimes wonder, you know, with some people, you know, they don't get this, but when you, when you give, you know, I believe giving and focusing on giving is actually secretly a very selfish thing to do. Because, not because of the action, but because the no, payment no. that you get, the payment that you get from behaving and living a life like that is massive. It's like bigger than all the tea in China. And so it don't, doesn't matter how big your house is, how big your boat is, how fancy your car or your watches or any of that kind of stuff because the payment that you receive 
you know, you come, come back to gratitude again. You're just filled with gratitude because of that. So living a life like that, I completely concur. What a wonderful thing I to just, do. I Michael, just changed, very quickly, I just changed the wording. So it's not giving, uh, the more you give, the more you shall receive. I just add the little saying in there, the more you give, expecting nothing in return, the more you shall receive. And it's, you know, when we, when we, uh, when we give without remembering and receive without forgetting, and I think that's when this whole world becomes a better place to live. Say that again for me. I want to really hear that. When we give without remembering and receive without forgetting, that's when our world changes. What a great way to end the show. Michael Crossland, thank you so much. My pleasure. Boy, has that guy been through <laughs> some challenges in his time. I mean, goodness me. I mean, to listen to what Michael has, has, has been through, the, the illnesses, the, the, the recovery, the illnesses, again, the recovery, the lungs, the kidney, the heart. I mean, honestly, that man has been battered and bruised and ravaged by cancer, which I know many of you will know other people in this world that have been affected by that kind of stuff too. But his spirit, his commitment, his positivity, his energy, and the joy, really, that that guy has got, for me, was really touching. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with, and partners for the podcast are Najahi Events and Najahi Tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word, and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world-leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers, that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoyed these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. If you enjoyed this episode and you're listening to it on iTunes, please leave us a five-star rating. And if you're listening to it on any other podcast app, give us a follow, leave some comments. Because remember, the more that you do that, the more that we can get this content to a bigger audience that can benefit in the same way as you. Can't wait to see you on the next episode.